It's February, and for book lovers, this month's podcast is a total treat in two parts. Vintage podcast, which this month is naturally going to mention love. But being vintage, we're going to make it far more interesting than a box of chocolates or some wilted blooms from the petrol station. Aren't we, Will? Yes. We don't want any of that lovey-dovey stuff, do we? I mean, where's the fun in that? No, literature is filled with far more interesting representations of love in all of its forms. And in fact, we've got so much love to give in this podcast, it's going to come in two parts. So in this half, we're going to head across the Atlantic with John Burnside and James Lasden, who look at secrets and lies in America. And we will return before Valentine's Day itself with Ross Raisin and Edouard Louis to look at love and masculinity in France and the world of football. And I am loving all of these books. Well, you are a big John Burnside fan, aren't you? I might even be the biggest. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I'm actually not even ashamed uh, of the way I was fangirling over him recently when he came down to London. But I will tell you more about that anon. Um, Alex, you're actually going to start us off, aren't you, with James Lasden and his new novel, The Full Guy, which I also loved. Yes, Lasden is a fascinating writer. I loved his novel, The Horned Man. He's also a poet and he wrote a memoir about being stalked, Give Me Everything You Have. I just think he's one of our really fantastic writers who probably just doesn't quite get enough airtime, so we're going to give him lots. So I'm delighted to be joined uh, by James Lasden now in the studio. James, thank you so much for, for visiting us. You are here from the States, aren't you? I am, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Well, I have a kind of grudge against you right now because... I sit before you a woman who has had about three hours sleep and that is because I was reading um, The Fall Guy, your third novel, although by no means your third book. You are prolific in all sorts of areas and I'm sure we will come on to that a bit later. Um, But I could not stop reading it and then I woke up early and finished it and boy, it's gripping. You set out to write a page turner perhaps. Tell, Tell us a bit about how it started. I, I mean, I didn't think page-turner, but I mean, I always like stories that, that are gripping and completely engaging, even if they're not thrillers, but this has elements of a thriller in it. And so, you know, I suppose at a certain point, I, I, I did give that some more thought than I would normally do. Um, yeah. It has elements in common also with your, your other books. Let's just set the scene uh, briefly. It begins with two cousins on a trip to a summer house um, in the States, and they're going to spend the summer there together, and there is a great imbalance between them. There is, yes. I mean, there's a, one of them's a, Charlie is a wealthy banker, and his cousin Matthew is a pretty much failed chef, or failing chef, and generally sort of losing his way in the world altogether. But they've known each other, they have a lot of history, and Charlie invites Matthew to come for the summer to his house in the Catskills, and Charlie's wife is there, Chloe, and Matthew feels a very complicated affinity with her, which is partly just attraction, but it, but he's very happy not to do anything about it, and it's actually a, quite a stable triangle. And I think you know part of what interested me was was the stability of that triangle. In, in it, all kinds of uh, fault lines are sort of kept intact, all kinds of tensions that have to do with his and Charlie's past are sort of 
precariously stable. And, and yeah, They've sort of been brought up almost as brothers in a way, haven't they? Yes. Um, Charlie's parents died when he was young and he um, went to live in England with Matthew. Matthew grew up in England, so it's a little bit of a sort of transatlantic situation. And then something happened in Matthew's family and Charlie left the family. But they they maintained a sort of relationship and then it, it, it resumed its some of its former closeness when Matthew moved to the States. So there's a, there's a little bit of that kind of uh, movement back and forth uh, between England and America. What interested me beginning to read it was, and I hope you won't take this the wrong way, I started reading it, I realised they are literally on their journey up to up to the Catskills uh, and the summer is about to start and various little complications happen before it gets underway. But that it's a very simple story in that sense. Yeah. It just kind of begins and there you are. And I actually thought a few pages in, how is this going to sustain? This is the story of three people spending a summer together and yes, I understand that, that one of them kind of at the most basic level sort of has the hots for the other one's wife. Yes, I understand that one is rich and one is poor. But it was written in a way that was so simple that I thought, how's this going to go on? Now, we don't want to give any spoilers because it is a gripping read. But that seemed to me deliberate. You were attempting to make us feel that we were in a very simple setup. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want it to be boring, <laughs> but, but I, I wanted to set in place various Various of, of the tensions between them, but in a very low-key way to begin with, and and really to partly to bring out the the the, the beauty of the place and and the the sort of intense summer feeling. I mean, part of, part of the book is is a just a sort of celebration of uh, the the very beautiful part of the world where they're having this summer, which I know quite well, and. Um, but then there's the arrival of a fourth figure who completely destabilizes this triangle. And that was what interested me dramatically. I hadn't, I mean, maybe it's been done before, but I hadn't seen this particular geometry of relationships done before. And it, it, it did interest me. This fourth figure appears on the scene and um, everything begins to well up from the past. And, uh, and Matthew... how. <laughs> <laughs> it is very much a book that... We know that things are going to well up. We sort of get that 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 feeling. As I began to read more into the book, I realised that the viewpoint of Matthew, it isn't a first-person novel, but it is very much situated in his viewpoint, um, was very fallible, was very partial. We were getting some of the story and surely more was going to come out. Um, but it was very interesting, that idea that the past, we all know that it's with us, but that it could be so occluded and yet so vital. Well, he, yes. I mean, and that, that also interested me, right, writing a, a very close third person. You're sort of in his head, but you're not, it's not the same as a first person thing. And it, a lot of it is to do with he's confronting all kinds of mysteries about himself that he hasn't really dealt with. And it's, this seemed a way of doing that, that of, of making, in a sense, his, his discovery of who he is and, and what he is dramatic. Uh, it's a process of um, being confronted with things that he doesn't really understand. And you sort of know as a reader that maybe he's not quite getting it. Um, but it's not tricksy. I didn't want it to be a kind of tricksy Nabokovian thing where you have to be, you know, 
versed in unreliable narrator strategies. I'm not that interested. No, you can in read it totally straight. Yeah, it is. It, you it, can it, read it totally straight. Yeah, and I, I would hope that people would read it totally straight. I mean, I, I don't have that kind of interest in in sort of playing games, and but and he's he's trying always to get to the truth. It's just that he doesn't. It takes him time sometimes, and and so there there are scenes in which he's confronted with things about himself that kind of come as news to him and alter his perception of his entire past, really. Um, there is that idea, isn't there, that you have these these two men who've been brought up in the same family. Their paths have wildly diverged. That is partly due to circumstance. Um, both of them have missing parents of one kind or of another. Both are now orphans. Um, and yet their way of dealing with that is entirely different. Yes, um, Charlie's from from a young age quite a manipulative, clever uh, ex- exploiter of people. But it, it's not. I hope it's not a one dimensional portrait because he also has he also has a very bad conscience, and his whole life, in a way, has been a, a, a little bit of a dialogue between the two things: his 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 gift for manipulation and his very uneasy conscience. And both are at play in his invitation to his cousin to come and stay. And Matthew doesn't have those kinds of abilities, or at least isn't consciously manipulating things. But at at a certain point in the story, he's more given to kind of just acting out compulsively and Mm. getting into rather obsessive situations Mm. and um, not really in control of what he does. And ultimately, that causes him to do things that are much more... I don't know if they're more powerful, but they're certainly more more vivid and perhaps more violent than anything Charlie would do. This all takes place against this very vivid social portrait. You mentioned uh, the, the sort of wealth. You mentioned the beauty of this this summer place. There are some uh, extraordinary scenes of cooking. Matthew is a very good cook, and he's also been sort of relegated to this or given this kind of position in the family. He's going to cook for them. He's almost, in some ways, a butler because he's always sort of cleaning up as well. But he makes these most extraordinary meals, and there's a moment where he, I think he he realises that he's forgotten the equipment that he needs to make a Parmesan foam. And you just think, I couldn't really deal with this person in my house either. Was there an extent to the, which he was sort of skewering some of this kind of mad sort of lifestyle. Well, I was enjoying it. I mean, but I also, um, I I, I think at a certain point it became, um, it it occurred to me that actually his food, his cooking could be a way of conveying his state of mind at any given moment in the story. And the the meals that that sort of he concocts do get more and more neurotic, basically. (laughs) Um, and I, and I, you know, you're always looking for different ways of evoking some somebody's inner life, and you know that 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 seemed a way of doing his. Yes, he does. He does seem also, as you mentioned, acting out there. He seems to prepare things that are really going to mirror in some way what's going on. Particularly a very kind of um, well, slightly gross meal at the end of at the end of the book, but uh, not to, not to hint about that. Um, but there are also other more sort of broadly kind of social moments. So we become aware, for example, the book set in 2012. We become aware of the Occupy movement. We become aware of that. It's post crash. Obviously, that's had an impact on uh, not 
not Charlie's immediate wealth, but certainly the progress of his career. Um, and of course, for a British reader, you're also reading about this idea of these kind of wealthy American summers that are such a sort of staple of our vision of America. They don't really exist um, in England, but we look at the weather and realise why. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder what you were keying into there. Well, I did want to get the politics of, of um, you know, the, the post-crash era. And the, the, I, I was interested in, in questions of culpability and guilt at every kind of level, on a very mm. personal level. So Charlie has, it, it emerges, you know, some things to be guilty about on the personal level in his relationship with, with Matthew. And then there's the wider kind of political implications of what he's been doing as a banker. And he's very uneasy about that. And he has this sort of tormented interest in ethical investment as his way of navigating his own bad conscience. Um, and yes, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to explore those ideas um, of, of culpability of sort of, can you even to some extent pay or outsource your own pain? Because part of the way the story works is that Matthew becomes the person who feels Charlie's pain for Charlie yes, in yes. some in some some sort of fashion, um, and the, yeah, that interested me very much. And as far as setting it, I mean, I know I, I, I don't I don't mix with bankers, but um, you don't have to be particularly wealthy to um, to have a, a, a beautiful summer. Uh, this is not the Hamptons. I mean, it's it's not quite the the, the world of the super rich. In fact, somebody like Charlie, there are people like him in, in this part of the Catskills, but the, he's not a very typical resident. Mm. Um, and I wanted that, I mean, in, in a way for me, that humanized him a little bit that he doesn't go to the Hamptons for his summer. He goes upstate into the, to the mountains. Um, yeah, he's not Gatsby. He's he? not it's Gatsby. Not, it's not that kind of thing. There is this idea of the sort of the guilty conscience. And, of course, the female character in the book very interesting because you see this panning out, the, these two points of the triangle, the, the relationship between the men, the sort of rivalry, the very submerged rivalry. And here is this woman who, again, is a kind of blank canvas for you. You're not in her head. How did she work out for you? Um, well, she... I, I wanted her to be interesting she's very because you know he Matthew is fascinated by her and every aspect of her is he sort of slightly fetishizes um, all the things that interest her and she turns out to have a lot of little sort of pockets of interest and you know particular kinds of music and art and um, butterflies and things like that and and each 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 thing he discovers is like a new offers him a new layer of obsessive interest uh, in her, so I wanted her to be a, a character who slowly kind of reveals aspects of herself. But I, I you know, she 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 plays a very uh, she has a she has a difficult role, and in, in the sense that she, and well, the, all three of them bad stuff happens to over the summer, or they get into situations which are I- I- extremely uncomfortable, and hers is, I mean, without giving anything away, is perhaps 
at the social level, at the personal level, the most uncomfortable mm. by the end of the book. Yes, exactly. Uh, There's this sort of, um, I found it terrifying in the book, that idea that at various points, we can't predict them, we are suddenly going to be aware of the difference between what we think people think of us and what they actually think of us. And it seemed to me that was one of one of the things that the book was exploring and playing with, how frightening and, and dissociating, really, that is. Yeah. And if you have a, a group of characters, sort of three or four characters together, they're, 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 it, it, it's interesting... There are interesting opportunities for a novelist to, to set up scenes where you find out things inadvertently about yourself. And um, but I, I, I did also. I wanted Chloe, the, the female character, to handle her discomfort with a particular kind of grace that the the others don't really have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, 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 I wanted that to to. I mean, she she does things that you know many people would disapprove of morally, but I still wanted her to be a kind of person who, who had, had, a, had a real grace about her. Right. I wanted to ask you about this, this business. We sort of alluded to it, uh, of, of the kind of foot in both camps, the transatlantic nature of the book, not just in terms of the, the past childhood of Matthew and the echoes back to his London upbringing, um, but in your own writing, in that sense of having a foot in both camps. How important is that for you as a writer? Well, it's the... It's, it's the condition I, I write out of, in the sense. I mean, uh, you know, it it has its um, its pros and cons. I mean, I if I write a character, I I like to feel that I know them in depth, even if it doesn't get onto the page. And and you know, writing a purely American story would be quite difficult for me because I mm. don't have a deep sense of what their pasts would have, their childhoods would have been. I mean, I brought up my children in America, so I know, but that's now. And I, I guess I could do a, a younger person having looked at my own children. But but I do, I feel, yeah, I, I, I like to, I like to have situations that, 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 that call for a kind of transatlantic cast. Um, just, I don't know if I always will, but... Uh, that also brings to mind, though, that, that, that kind of idea of, uh, as a writer, of being in between two traditions or talking between two traditions. And, uh, I mean, I suppose one of the reasons was because of the subject matter at times when I was reading this book. I thought of the sort of discomforts and social discomforts of something like The Go-Between, which, you know, is a very different book and about a child, but it is about that idea of a, of sort of understanding a very difficult personal situation and how you get caught up in it. We've mentioned, I've mentioned Gatsby, you've mentioned Nabokov. There are all these uh, different traditions and, and I wonder if some, how that kind of mobility between them is important to you. Uh, that's interesting. You know, I, I, I mean, mentioning that I had never thought of the go-between in connection with this book, but it was a book that I really loved uh, uh, when I read it as a teenager. And I, 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 I yeah, probably it's lurking there somewhere. Um, <laughs> it's awful when people put words into your mouth. No, it's very, no I'm very, uh, that's very interesting. Because, I mean, I, in my sort of what I'm more consciously aware of is, is uh, a lot of the books I've been reading in the last, couple of years have been American crime stories, psychological thrillers. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to write a sort of hard-boiled James M. Kane or something like that. But, you know, Patricia Highsmith was a huge sort of influence, I would say. I mean, it was just some, she was just somebody I've come to like more and more. Um, 
Yeah, so I felt that influence reading this book, not so much necessarily the Ripley novels, but I there's a, a, a slightly less well-known novel called Deep Water that I thought there was a kind of echo of this. It's that sort of small town, uh, you know, kind of idea. It, it, it's, a, it's to do with atmosphere, isn't it? It's to do with capturing menace. Menace is very important. And, and yes, just letting things unfold in a way that seems very natural, um, while at the same time creating these these gripping plots, um, and I think you know also she's she she's usually has a f- somewhat narrow canvas but goes really deep into 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 the psyche of her characters and she's very to me it always feels very uh, authentic very true what she what she manages to bring up even with these very sort of psychopathic characters I mean there isn't a I wouldn't say that Matthews, as you say, he's not—he's not a Ripley character, but no, but no. but you know, there there are there are undercurrents. Some undercurrents. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I think in a way, in all of them, in, in sort of everybody, in a way, in, in the book, um, I wanted just to ask you um, about this business of, of different forms. This is your third novel. You've written poetry. Um, you write screenplays. You're a critic. The ability to kind of switch between these sort of narrative forms what how did that come about I mean is it accident or, or design um I it wasn't I mean I I wanted to write poems and then I got interested in short stories and uh I didn't I didn't see them as very different activities um some, it was more about what mood I was in uh and for a long time, I was able to sustain. I mean, I was able to do both poetry and fiction. Those are the two main things I've done. The other stuff is just, I think, more what every every writer does. You just get asked to review a book, or yes. or something happens in your life, and you write a non-fiction book about well, it. Well, you wrote a, a memoir, of course, uh, about the experience of being the, the focus of a of an obsessive um, gaze and obsessive attention. And I wonder how much that changed the nature of the fiction that you were writing? I probably did. Um, I mean, it almost certainly did. It certainly, it could, I mean, one of the things, that, it changed the nature of what I was reading uh, because I was never that interested in, I mean, I, I liked crime stories, but I was not, I, you know, I didn't really sort of study them <laughs> or really sort of spend a lot of time reading them. Uh, but one of the effects of, of that experience was I found myself more and more exclusively interested in them, and you sort of—I mean, not exclusively, but but yeah, that's so. It changed what I read, and that I'm sure fed into what I was th- thinking of writing. And that does make it a sort of interesting question of genre, doesn't it? Yes, you know, of, of moving between genre and how useful that can be. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think genres uh, can be very fruitful to work within within a genre as long as you're not kind of imprisoned by it. Um, and you know some of the constraints are, are are good. I mean, I like I like things that move quite fast. I, you know, yeah. So I mean, but I have to say I I can't write poetry and fiction any longer together. I mean, they they just I I have to basically sort of dedicate myself to one or the other for very long periods. And it's different parts of the brain that don't don't sit happily together. Yeah, there's it's either yes or just the practicalities of it. Uh, and also, I, I you know, I'm just more interested in fiction these days. Mm. Just as a, as a final question, um, I mean, this is a, a, a 
concise book. It's not a it's not a sort of doorstopper. Um, it's also a small canvas. We have become used to vast novels, panoramic novels. Um, we've seen quite a lot of them coming out of America in the last few years. I mean, obviously, a, a very sensible response to that is it's not an either or. Um, and yet you do sort of make a decision, don't you? You've made a decision to write the kind of book that you're going to write, small scale, minutely observed. I wonder what you think about the sort of gap between those two traditions, as it were. Yeah, they're very different in a way, but I, it's not, I, do, I haven't made a sort of decision to only write this kind of thing. I'd love to write a, a bigger book with many more characters. And a you would? Bigger, yeah, <laughs> I mean, but, I, but it has to be the right one for me. Uh, and I, I think whatever I do next probably will be on a bigger scale or have more more characters in it and um, cover more time. This is all within the sort of space of a, mm, a couple a few of weeks. months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that I've kind of decided against doing that. I am, I'm interested, but I just haven't found what it is yet. <laughs> I hope you do, because although I could, read, I could read another book exactly like this in a sense, I would love to read that book too. Um, I enormously enjoyed the book and I think it's going to be the kind of book that I would recommend to people, obviously, for their, their summer reading. But I think if you see somebody reading this round the pool you might think twice about what they're cooking you for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, James, for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Great stuff. I found that book very unsettling from the very first page, actually. I had this really horrible feeling from the off. Yeah, really was, wasn't it? Really sort of claustrophobic and creepy. <laughs> um, not dissimilar to the feeling you often get when reading John Burnside, she said, making a neat segue to our next author. Seamless. He's another polymath, isn't he? He writes poetry, prose, memoir, you name it. He does, and uh, he does it all brilliantly, which is very annoying. Makes him a very, very talented man. Um, You're right, he does unease incredibly well. Also myth and violence. And actually, I was quite surprised when I found out that his new novel was set in America. Um, But when I got the chance to speak to him about it, I discovered, of course, that it was even more fascinating than I could have guessed. Here is our little chat. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Vintage Podcast uh, to talk about your new novel, Ashland and Vine. Um, now, if I think back over your your writing career, I, when I think of your novels, I think of either sort of industrial landscapes, I think of myth and folklore. And so when I heard even the title of your new book and then saw the cover and, and then started reading it, I was surprised to find myself in America. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, how have we found ourselves in America? Where did this book come from? Well, I've been traveling to the U.S. for many, many years, and 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 specifically, I think this book came out of my experiences in the Midwest. Mm. Um, I think anybody traveling from here to the coast, other coast, will, will will have a certain kind of experience of the United States, especially if they go to is it New York, San Francisco, L.A., wherever. Mm. But I spent a lot of time traveling to the Midwest, in Kansas, and Missouri, and various places, and um, and I got very good friends who their house is actually the model for, in many ways for Gene's house. Um, who who lived near um, St. Louis, just 20 miles out of St. Louis or so. And um, the Midwest experience is very difficult um, for us because we, we're, we're our experience here is the kind of you know, people who vote, now voted for Trump or mm. voted for Bush and people we think we wouldn't like. But they're such great people. <laughs> you arrive there and everyone's really kind and thoughtful. I mean, genuinely, so not, it's not this 
have a nice day kind of stuff that you get in some of the cities. It's genuine. If you if you know if you if you need help in in, in Edwardsville, Illinois, someone will help you. Mm. You know, obviously there's exceptions, <laughs> and we should have a few of them as well. But um, it was just the puzzlement I had about people who are like this, who are likable, generous, not stupid at all people, why they watched Fox News and believed it, or you know why they, they, they weren't um, amenable to political argument. I mean, one doesn't talk politics. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm happy to talk religion. Right. I know my, I know my Bible. You know, and um, people are, uh, you know, people are deeply, you know, immersed in their Bible there often, and and want to live Christian lives in the best sense of the word, um, but they get constantly fed misinformation yeah. and disinformation. But the main thing I thought was the absence of history, the sense that people were not interested in anything that happened before their lifetimes or even their kids' lifetimes, whatever, mm. and also. Um, the absence of the, uh, the the unavailability of the real histories, um, you, you 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 know I say the absence of history. People say we've got the history channel, we've got the Discovery Channel, we've got this channel, we've got that channel on right. TV, and they tell you the story of the sixties, which is about you know kind of crazy kids wearing denims, you know, and singing these <laughs> songs and stuff, and nothing about um, the, you know the real movements that went on in American history, and I think of America as a, as a, as a profoundly uh, justice-seeking country in its history. Strong, a strong anarchist movement, and I mean anarchist in the real sense of the word, yeah. by the way it's usually used politically. Um, strong left wing um, background, the wobblies, etc. Um, unions. This, these are all things that, that America pushed for, or Americans pushed for, and have been taken away from them gradually by this process of, of no, that didn't happen, or I, I'm going to ignore that chunk of history. Yeah. And, and my main character, Jean, is someone who suddenly realizes that in her life, same thing had happened. And her own personal history is one that people started to tell lies about as soon as things happened. And um, she learns from her niece that the importance of history. Mm. And um, one of the reasons um, I, I, I cut the book to the length it is now is because I, I got so carried away that... The book started to become an 800-page history lesson. <laughs> I thought, people won't thank me for this. <laughs> so this this erasure of history is something I, want, I was quite angry about. And I also felt that if good people get a chance to really understand and read the history um, and think about that instead of being fed all this nonsense, I think they would change the way they looked at things. Hopefully, I hope that they would change that. As I was reading, I was thinking maybe this isn't so different to what I think of as, as a Burnside novel because it's tapping into American myth and folklore. But actually, it's not myth. It's you're talking about unearthing truth, sort of telling people what actually happened. Hmm. Through the through the novel, we get to hear the the story of of Jean's life as she relates it to to the sort of the main character, I guess. And it's a bit like uh, a Scheherazade situation, isn't it, where she sort of comes back each day to hear a little bit more mm. of, of her story. And tapping into that um, era of American politics, when I was reading that, I was reminded of Roth's novel American Pastoral, uh, which deals with a sort of similar period and a similar idea. W was that, were you aware of that book whilst you were writing this one, or the, the sort of the ghost of it slightly? Or? Oh, God, yes, yeah. I was aware of that book. Uh, I was furious with that book. <laughs> In real life, the guys who joined Weather Underground... Almost every one of them had at least nine, eight or nine years 
of experience of passive resistance. They were pacifists. Mm-hmm. They marched. They didn't fight the cops back. They, they got beaten up. They got their heads cracked, etc. In 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 American pastoral, there are, there are these crazy kids who are just desperate to run out and start being violent mm. right away. Um, in real life, most of these people, almost all of these people, had strong relationships with their parents, some of whom stayed loyal to them all the way through their time in the underground and gave them money and cars and, and helped, and which would have got them in prison. Yeah. American pastoral, kids hate the parents, the parents, you know, et cetera. And I had been doing research and um, and I'd been reading all of the memoirs of various people in, in the underground. I'd been writing to people, and I even wrote to um, David Gilbert, who's in prison still, mm. sadly, in, in, in New York State. He talked about his background, you know, very fond of his parents, an activist from his point of view since he was 14 years old. When he noticed that racism, he comes from middle class, Brooklyn, you know, mm. Boston suburb, middle class, middle upper middle class guy. Um, very comfortable life if he chose it. And he chose not to, but he didn't choose to go out there and start putting bombs in the post office no. like a like a Roth character. Yeah. Um, so I was very annoyed at this. And I thought, why is it that of all these people who've written about terrorism, so-called, um, they've always chosen to portray these people as slightly you know, off, psychologically disturbed or... Um, parent-hating, mm. incest-fantasizing people, you know. And when in real life, they were actually smart, brave, and, and disciplined. Yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't do all this hippie stuff. Um, they didn't go and you know, smoke dope and, you know, lie around in the grass. No, no, they were they actually, engaged. Yeah, they yeah. were engaged. And they were very disciplined in their engagement. And so when one mistake was made, and this was one group, uh, the townhouse explosion, which everyone knows about, which mm. the press made sure that that was not about. When that mistake was made and people were found to be um, making anti-personnel bombs, the the group got together and said, and remember these are people now underground, they got together and said, we have to control this to make sure that we don't harm people. That's not what we're doing here. Mm. And in whole of weather's history, no human being was either injured or killed. People were killed during that period by bombs, but that they weren't weather bombs. No. So um, they were very, very careful and, and, and planned and disciplined to make sure that that wasn't, it wasn't the anti-personnel, it was sabotage of the system. They chose, I think they chose their targets beautifully. Mm. So I think they were, they were great. Um, they, they weren't perfect. I mean, they made mistakes. Mm. I think they were naive too because I don't think anybody asked, really understood the full weight of the system that they were against, what mm. would happen. But... You know, I love Philip Roth in many ways, but American Pastoral made me furious. Yeah. What another thing that happened to me during the time I was thinking about the book was my eldest son was doing a project on American history mm. in the sixties. He had the so very trendy to the sixties. And he came home from his wretched school that he went to in those days. Um and he was telling me about the um Black Panthers. And I said, Who told you this? Oh, it's in our history class. Yeah. You might tell that teacher this is all lies. The Black Panthers were terrorists. They were armed, running around the place, robbing people, mm. building bombs and stuff. And I said, you tell that teacher of yours, the Black Panthers were trying to get every kid in, in the ghetto a decent breakfast before they went to school because the kids were going to school hungry. Mm. They couldn't concentrate on their work. They were just trying, in, in terrible schools with no facilities, they were just trying to do that. They were people who were trying to protect their, their neighborhoods. Mm. 
anywhere else in the world, they'd be classed as heroes. And they didn't shoot the police. The police shot them. Yeah. They armed themselves for self-protection. And I, and I went, and he just looked at me like, oh, my God, <laughs> I wish I hadn't told him about this. But, you know, this is, this is the history my kids are getting. Yeah. So I insisted that he read other stuff. And, and, and nowadays he's, well, nowadays he's, he's pretty mixed up. But, um, you know, nowadays at least he's got different perspectives. Yeah. Does that mean that when you were writing this book, you, more than with perhaps your other fiction, that you felt like you were having to sort of set a record straight? That, in fact, whilst it was fiction, you were actually saying, but this is, you know, this is the real story of what went on then. Yeah, I really had to get control of myself at one point because it was spiraling out of control. Um, and I really wanted to tell the histories as well. It would have been in Jean's voice and it would have gone on forever and it would have been incredibly tedious. And none of it would have been as good as Dan Berger's book, Outlaws in America, anyway. Mm-hmm. So I say, in, I say in the acknowledgments at the end, I couldn't do the history here, but yeah. read Dan Berger's book. It's brilliant. It's honest. It's, 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 it's researched by talking to people who were there, who saw what, what really happened, including mm-hmm. David Gilbert. He, he had a lot. You know, he had a lot of time with David Gilbert. Yeah, I wanted to do it, and then I realized I couldn't. I was a novel, and it wasn't about telling history. Mm. But at the same time, what what saved me, in fact, in the way was I started to fall in love with Jean, basically. She's a great character for me. Yeah. I kind of um, got more and more drawn into the relationship between Kate and Jean, and um, that really was the heart of the novel. Mm. Um, the question at the beginning of the novel was, how do you do actively do good in political sense and social sense? And it came from Seneca. Mm. By the end of the novel, the, um, I guess the the kind of counter or the, the 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 balance that was, what does love do in the world, even between such unlikely people? Yeah, because I hope people see at the end that these two women love each other, and you know have been formed by each other or or, in a way, in some ways rescued by each other. Yeah, because Jean, is, I hope that people will feel that Jean is as much rescued by Kay as Kay is rescued by Jean. Mm-hmm. And that love um, is perhaps the, and, and the fact that they listen to each other, that they gradually learn to really pay attention to each other. Mm-hmm. And Kate knows where the stories, when the lies are coming to the stories, when Jean is subverting her own story. Yeah. Because Jean can't face up to the fact of what she did to her lover. Yeah. Um, and uh, not deliberately, of course, but she can't. She can't tell that. She can't. She literally can't say the true story of what happened that day. Yeah. And so it has to be told in another way. But Kate knows. Um, so Kate's been listening carefully to her. And, you know, that, I think that's the, the, that's the heart of the book for me. It's interesting you say that, that thing about not being able to, to admit to yourself about what you feel, uh, particularly with love. And this is reminding me again of uh, another of your books, one of your memoirs, I Put a Spell on You, where you, you describe this thing about feeling something for somebody and when it's reciprocated, being completely terrified and sort of running away from that. Mm. Is that a bit closer to what love really is? It seems to me that's a very honest description of what love really feels like as opposed to the other descriptions you might get. That's a description of what love, the possibility of love, feels like for someone who's got what they call, I mean, uh, it's a piece of shorthand, isn't it? Low self-esteem. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, we've been hearing a lot about low self-esteem recently because I've got teenage kids and they've been going to awareness things and mm. at school about self-esteem and stuff. And how do you build up your self-esteem? But, I mean, when that, that happened, I mean, I, I, had, I was at the lowest, well, one of the lowest times of my life in terms of self-esteem, whatever I was 
you might call it. My, it was recent. My mother had died relatively recently. I had gone to live in Cambridge. I'd gotten together with somebody. Um, her parents intervened before we were going to get engaged. The whole deal. Mm. And her parents intervened because they didn't like the look at me. Right. Quite right too. I'm, I'm like, I thank them now for everybody's sake. <laughs> I was deeply into you know, methadrine and booze and every, you name it. I was a complete mess. Yeah. And then I met this woman, you know, coming out of this re- rebound type thing. But it, it certainly wasn't just that kind of thing. Yeah. Um. I mean, she's just off the scale. And um. If it hadn't been for her so-called friend, and who was also a so-called friend of mine, telling me some very careful lies. <laughs> Um, we might we might have ended up, um, you know, floundering through some kind of relationship which neither of us would have been ready for at the time. Yeah. But she told these lies, and I and I I, I remarked the other day to my son because my son was saying they'd been been doing this talk on self esteem at school, and I said, you know, for me, low self esteem is is it makes you vulnerable to lies. If you're much easier to lie to if you've got low self esteem, mm. and I, of course we looked at that and I want to always expand personal experiences like that into a political context. And of course, if you keep a population of people with low self-esteem and constantly second-guessing how well they're doing, and then of course it's easier to lie to them. Right. Um, so I relate in that way as well. Um, so in many ways, there's not such a disjunction between, say, this novel and that and that book. Because yeah. um, that book really was an account of various people in states of, you know, it's as long as we accept it's a shorthand, I can use the term low self-esteem. Yeah, you know? yeah. I just wondered, you mentioned there, you know, some of your own books. So I wondered if there were any, and also you have a poetry collection, which is which is coming out in the same month, uh, in which there are very, very beautiful moments of, of love, very, very briefly captured in those poems. But I wondered if you had any sort of classic novels or, or maybe any novels you'd read re- recently that you felt had really captured love um, in a way that felt true. You mean romantic love, of course, since it's February. Well, I, I think probably not romantic. I think, you know, <laughs> mm. whatever love really feels like. I think, you know, I think we, we get peddled the same stuff every year, don't we, with, yeah. with Valentine's Day. And I think it's really nice to try and find something which is a bit more like it really is. I wondered if you had – I think you of all people would probably <laughs> be able to guide us. Well, actually, um, I'm, I've been working on um, William Carlos Williams recently, and I find it I find it really – I used to kind of admire him mm-hmm. um, for doing this because he wrote – for example, great poem, The Ivy Crown, to his wife. Mm-hmm. And he says, and he's saying in this poem things like, you know, it's not roses for us. You know, we've been, we've been married a long time and roses, all that stuff. Now, for us, it's ivy symbolizes our relationship. Yeah. You know, it's evergreen and it's lasting. And no flowers, but, you know, hey. <laughs> And then he's, yeah, besides, roses have got thorns and all that kind of stuff. So let's leave the roses for the young, beautiful ones and we'll stick to ivy. And you think... No, you don't say that to your wife who's when she's about 70. You say you're still as beautiful as ever. And I used to feel that I was quite honest and, and brave, but it's not. Yeah. You know, um, love to some extent, and the question is where you draw the line, romantic love or, or all kinds of love depends on imagination mm-hmm. and inventiveness. Um so I, I, I think of books that make me think about love in new ways. As, um, there's a really nice book by Boris Vian, the um, French writer. And it's called Les Coumes des Jours. I don't know what that is in English. I think it's 
it was once translated as froth on a daydream, which sounds horrible, <laughs> sounds slightly perverse. But <laughs> Le Cum de Jour is much nicer. So. Um, but he talks about, he has a relationship in which there's a kind of genuine love mm. and it's a kind of fake love and alongside each other, two sets of friends. And I think the, the genuine love comes out of the fact that in both cases, on both sides, the, the, the lovers are constantly using their imagination to invest the other in a kind of light. Because, you know, we all know about the, the dirty you know, the dirty socks on the bathroom floor and yeah. the, all those things, you know, the people who don't ever comb their hair or brush their sh- or clean their shoes when, yeah. they're, when they're at home. Or I go around for three or four days at a time in the same kimono. <laughs> I don't like wearing Western clothes. I wear Japanese clothes at home. But, you know, I kind of go around just, you know, hair everywhere and, yeah. you know. And, um, you know, we all know about that, but but um, you need imagination to remind yourself of the fact that beneath this hedge, <laughs> fat, smelly hedge, there's actually a soul that you actually, at one time at least, engage with. Yeah, you know. And so I, I like books that 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 put the imagination to the forefront, and also ask questions about. Um, I, for me, the big question is: if it doesn't last, is it love? You know, a lot of my books have been about, you know romantic love, mm. it's been about that question. If it lasts for an afternoon or two months, does that mean it's invalid compared to something that lasts for, for a lifetime? I used to always hate when my friends got divorced and they said, I feel a sense of failure. We're only married for 14 years. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> That's a huge feat in my book, yeah. to remain married for 14 years. And well, at least one of them was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I've been married now. This year, this last year was twenty years of marriage. Yeah, I'm not going to say that um, they were all been easy. No, um, but we're still kind of muddling on, and um, and also I'm, I'm and I'm still and I'm sure if you ask Sarah, she'd certainly be very frank about it. I'm also very frank about the fact about the the limits of of you know day to day reality when you're living in a marriage. Yeah, um, marriage is the hardest thing in the world to do. I think it's even harder than writing a novel. There you go. Yeah. That is a that is a fantastic quote to end on Valentine's Day. <laughs> I'm going to write. I'll make sure not it's to worth doing. I want to say it's worth doing. <laughs> <laughs> I won't write that in a card to my wife this Valentine's Day. But anyway, John, <laughs> it's so fantastic to talk to you about Ashland and Vine. Very briefly about your poetry, but thank you so much for giving us some time today. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating, Will? That was so interesting. I mean. You sit in the world now, changing every day, mm. wondering how novelists can ever begin to represent our incredibly rapidly changing um, realities, mm. especially when they seem more fictional than anything else. But Burnside has that kind of grasp and range, doesn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. When I, when I was reading the book, I was thinking it was very much about the period that it's set in or the period that it's talking about. But to speak to him about it and realise the parallels to the world that we live in now, I think just makes it a, an even more fascinating book. So, yeah. Well, I, I remember talking to Sarah Perry, who wrote The Essex Serpent quite mm. recently, and she was essentially saying, well, there is no such thing as a historical novel. Yeah. You're always writing from now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, everything gets inflected. It's, it's the thing that, that fiction can do anyway. <laughs> Enough of our literary theorising. Thank you once again, listeners, for joining us on the Vintage Podcast. As ever, we'd love to know what you think, so do leave us a rating or a comment wherever you listen to us, like Claire Jones did last month. Thank you, Claire. Five stars, no less. 
We are immensely grateful and we'll be back with more lovely chat next when we talk to Edouard Louis and Ross Raisin about their new novels. See you then. And Will, you've got something to add, haven't you? I have. Just as a little treat for the end here. Um, uh, we mentioned very briefly then in a chat with John Burnside that he is a poet as well. Uh, his new collection, Still Life with Feeding Snake, is out in the same month as this novel. And we have a treat here. You can hear him reading one of the poems from that collection, which is called Still Life with Lost Cosmonaut. Enjoy. If I imagine you dead, there is no love immense enough to bring you back to earth. But here, in this bowl of apples, on this kitchen table, gold and crimson in the space that could not be more ample or precise, I see you drifting in the selfsame light that I inhabit, wishing not to occupy or slip loose or possess. Life being more to me than I could ever wish for. Colour, shape, the subtleties of shade, and when I bite into the fruit, the taste of it. Much more than I could wish for, though I wish you could be here. <laughs>